Happy Mother's Day, all the mothers here. I'd like to uh, welcome everyone here. Trust we've been blessed so far this Lord's Day. Um, I've been assigned a tremendous task this morning, um, namely to proclaim to the people of God, thus says God. For the text this morning, I have chosen the first five verses of the prologue of John. It is certainly a profound text. It is bottomless in the sense that no one will ever fully plumb the depth contained in it. But uh, don't feel discouraged, however. God has spoken to us with clarity, and his word can be understood. What I did realize, though, is the fact that one could speak all morning on just in the beginning, but I will refrain from that. So I have wrestled with the text. I have studied it, read it over countless times, and discovered I did, know, did not know it as well as I thought. I haven't thought or done much else for a while. My wife will testify. <laughs> I came to realize it is not an easy text to preach on. That being said, I love the deity of Christ, and I believe the start of John's prologue teaches it unambiguously. So with that, let's turn to the Gospel according to John and the first five verses. It reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Thus far I will read. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thank you for the opportunity this morning to proclaim your word. I ask that you would anoint my lips to speak your truth and to communicate it with clarity. I ask for strength and wisdom. I pray that your spirit would, would be active among us in applying your word to our hearts. And may the saints be edified and you glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk a little bit about the author, several things about John, he's the son of Zebedee and is the brother of James. He is probably the youngest disciple of Jesus. He wrote the gospel according to John, of course, along with three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. In the gospel of John, he does not identify himself by name, but rather refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Personally, I don't think I would complain being known as such. He is also known as John the Evangelist and the Apostle of Love. So the Gospel of John has been said to be a heavenly book or a spiritual book. In it, John contends to reveal to us the heavenly side or deity of the God-man that is Jesus. He starts the book with the direct assertion of Christ's deity. <coughs> Excuse me. Reading this gospel, you come to realize it is John's purpose to show us that who Christ is and how we ought to respond to that knowledge. Unlike the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
John's gospel does not focus on the earthly so much. Like, for instance, John doesn't, does not seem too concerned about the earthly or history side, like the genealogies, the record of his birth, or his earthly life. John mentions little about Jesus' travels, and there are hardly any parables in John's, John's gospel compared to the other gospels. Parables, by the way, are earthly stories. In part, I believe this is due to the fact that John is writing last, so John concerns himself more about the details of who Jesus is and the divine side of him. The purpose and focus of the gospel is contained in one verse, which reads like this. But these have been written. These, John refers to what he wrote previously in his gospel. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verse 30. Believing here is the idea of a continuous gazing at the Son or looking to the Son and trusting in Him, as a result, receiving in life in His name. So with that, I would like to expound a little bit on the text. So John starts with, in the beginning. Sounds familiar, right? It is sort of an echo of Genesis 1-1. John definitely uses similar language, but the beginning of John is different in the sense that in the beginning the Word already was. The Word did not become in the beginning, but rather He already was, unlike in verse 14 where the, where the Word is said to become flesh. So in Genesis, the beginning without question references to the beginning of time and creation. So the first thing we think about when we, f when we hear in the beginning is a point in time like that in Genesis. No problem there other than John is not done. While I believe in he has the same beginning in mind here, the point John is making is he already was in the beginning when time began. So for those that would jump to rash conclusions and say, see, Jesus had a beginning, end of story, he was not God. I would encourage you to continue reading as we read the next couple phrases. John makes it abundantly clear that he does not want us to believe that there ever was a time when the Word did not exist. So with that, let's continue in verse 1. So we read, in the beginning, and then was the Word. Was the Word. What is John telling us here? Let, us, let me explain. This logos is the in the original Greek. Translated, the word appears four times in this prologue, three times in verse 1, and once in verse 14. In the writings of John, the Logos first appears, chronologically speaking, in Revelation 19.30. John, 13, sorry. John, again speaking about, about Jesus, says, His name is called the Word of God. And also found in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is called Word of Life. So who... Who or what is this Logos? In Greek philosophy, the Logos is understood to be an impersonal divine force out there implicit in the governing and running of the universe. But John, on the other hand, tells us the Logos is personal and active. He is active in creation, in upholding what's created and in redemption. The Logos is generally used in re reference to Revelation, like in the passage I quoted, quoted earlier, word of life or the word of God. Thus the Jews would have understood perfectly the term logos as they would have been used to 
hearing statements like, the word of the Lord came to such and such in the Old Testament. Furthermore, in John's usage, it is, communi- it is to communicate the incarnation of the word and him living among us. In John 1.14, we have this glorious statement. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father. And again in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So John tells us he has explained him. The idea is to to make known, to exegete, or to explain. So the Logos is revelation personified. That is, the Word came into the world, the Word became flesh, John 1.14, to reveal the mind of the Father. Folks, this is amazing. The eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, who is fully God, who has all for all eternity been God, has already eternally been in perfect relationship with the f- with God who also created all things has chosen in love to enter into his own creation through becoming flesh and dwelling among us the chief purpose being to display all of his attributes and character to his own eternal glory and secondly for the purpose of the redemption of his elect ones what an amazing thing as we read on, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So this Word, the Logos, was with God. Not with man or with angels, but with God. I believe God here is referring to the Father. He was in perfect fellowship or communion with the Father from all eternity. The thought here is not merely in proximity or being there sort of casually. So we see he preceded the creation since he was with God in the beginning. He was in the bosom of the Father. He, he exists as a person distinct from the Father, but is of the same essence and nature. He shares the radiance and the glory of the Father, as the scripture states. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And that's John 17:5. Before the world was, the Logos was in glory with God, so then the word was with God, but not only that, but we see he is very God of very God. So far we've had, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. As profound as that may be, John is not done. He then says, and the Word was God. This Logos is elevated to the status of God himself. He is highly exalted above the angels or any other created thing. He shares all the characteristics of God. He is the exact representation of his nature. Hebrews 1.3 He does not merely resemble deity, but is to his very nature deity. He is what makes God, God. So then John, having introduced to us the pre-existing, co-eternal, and living word, he sort of restates verse 1 in the second verse, saying, He was in the beginning with God. That is verse 2. This is a reaffirmation of verse 1. John, like most of the scripture writers, uses a repetitive teaching technique common in all the scripture writers as if he may not be certain whether we will grasp the depth of these things the first time around, which, if we're honest, we so often don't. He restates the essential foundational assertions on which much of John's theology will be built. The Gospel of John is filled with father and son relationship language. So John wants 
wants to emphasize this teaching early on. Also notice the tense of the verb here. He was. It's in the past. And again we read this phrase in the beginning directly tied to the coexistence of the word with God from all eternity. The Father and the Son have had perfect fellowship with one another. Notice up to this point, verse 1 and 2, John focuses on the eternal realm, but now he moves to the temporal and the realm of the created. So then we read in verse 3, John speaking of the word as the agent in the creation. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. God created all things. The Father is active in this. The Spirit is active in it. And thirdly, the Son is active. The Son is the agent through whom God made everything that exists. So then John says, all things. This means everything without exception. Visible or invisible. Principalities and powers. Every created being, thing or matter. Whether on earth or in heaven. All things from the smallest insect to the greatest angel. Was made by the Logos. Here are... Here are also several passages referencing to the Son's role in creation. Let's turn to Ephesians 3. <coughs> and verse 9 through 11, which reads, For by him all things were, were created, excuse me, both in the heavens and on earth, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Ephesians 3, 9 to 11. And also let's turn to Hebrews 1. I only have a partial quote here in my notes. Don't have my Bible here, but anyways, which reads, In these last days has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So this Son is the agent of creation, through whom God has made all things that exist, all the things we see around us, was created through him and for him. So let me summarize verse 1 through 3. John wants to drive this nail home, and that is, the Word was in the beginning before time began. While the Word was in the beginning with God, He was God. As God Himself, He is the, he's the one through whom all things were made. Without the eternal Word, nothing was made that was made. So with that in mind, let's dive into verse 4. So here goes, in, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in him was life. What does that mean? Well, life exists in him. This means he is the author of life itself. The self-existent, self-sufficient God has in himself life. No one possesses life in him by himself but God. So Creatures do not self-exist, but are reliant upon and sustained by the life of their creator. He created matter without matter. You know, you know you are God when you can speak something into existence out of nothing. 
For in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light. I could obviously go on a long time about this, but what does it mean when John says the life was the light? It is absolutely crucial that we get this since it has eternal implications. Without the life, men remain in darkness. The meaning of darkness and light we will discuss in further detail soon. It is speaking of the enlightenment resulting in salvation, I believe. Not only that, but all rays of light imparted to us as believers comes directly from the source of life and shines to enlighten our hearts. So what I believe John is telling us when he says the word was the life was the light of men, he means that the spiritual life found only in Christ, which is the light, enlightens every man, as we see in verse 9. So having laid the foundation for verse 5, let's look at what John has to say. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I would like to talk a little bit about what the light and darkness means in biblical terms, especially in John's writing. So first we have the darkness. Darkness always refers to sin and death, the power of evil. In verse 19 of chapter 3 of John, if you want to turn there, that's chapter 3, verse 19. which says, This is the judgment that the light has come into, wor into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. Therefore they will not come to the light for fear of being exposed. So then we see darkness as being in sin and enslaved to sin, and also the power of evil. The world is in darkness and is, is under the power of darkness kept captive by the evil one. And second, the light. Let's talk about the light. Light in scripture represents truth and righteousness. Hence why we're called sons of light. This light John refers to is unlike a candle that you can just hide or put out. Believers perhaps at times may cover their light and therefore dim, it, dim its effect. But the light that is called the life cannot be dimmed or diminished because it has life in itself. The light is powerful. It overcomes the darkness and the light, which is the life, procreates. And speaking in the sense that when we come to faith in Jesus, we become sons of the light. We are little lights of the big light. We find this in John 12:36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And finally, this life lives and produces life. The, f the life shines, the light, sorry, shines in the darkness. It is active and alive, and so we have a living light that drives out the, the darkness. It exposes every hidden thing. The light shines in the darkness and thrives in the darkness. Notice we have two direct opposites here between light and darkness. One represents life, which is the light, and the other death, which is the darkness. So if we continue reading, and the darkness did not comprehend it, 
So I'm reading this from the from the NASB, which reads comprehend. A couple other translations like the RSV and ESV read overcome, which I believe it could be both. If the darkness did not comprehend it, in which case the meaning would be did not lay hold or grasp it. And if the darkness did not overcome the light, in this case it would mean master over it or overpower it. In both translations, the light is victorious. I personally like the reading, did not overcome or master the light. In the, in the first part of the verse, we read, the light shines in the darkness. So clearly the light triumphs over darkness, and the darkness does not overpower the light. I believe that is what John wants to communicate to us. With that, I would like to summarize and make some application of the passage. Obviously, there is much we can draw from this text to apply. I want to make things very personal here. Um, do you have the light? Are you sons of the light? I think it is crucial that we look into that and that we respond to that knowledge. Like John says in John chapter 12, 36, While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and are tr trusting solely in his righteousness for your salvation, this text is of great assurance and comfort to you. Brothers and sisters, think with me about the implications of these words. Jesus is God and has always been God. He is our sure word from God. He has never spoken louder than in this, that he humbled himself and he took on human flesh so as to redeem his people. Hebrews 1 and 2, if you want to turn there, a great verse illustrating this. Speaking of Jesus again, writer of Hebrews says, Who for, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Folks, this is a powerful Savior. The creator of the universe stepped down to redeem his creation. So if you believe, you can be assured that he is the life that is the light, and he will triumph over the darkness. But... But if you do not believe, you are the darkness and this text brings you little comfort other than the promise that if you will repent and place your trust in him, you will be delivered from the power of darkness. So, it, so I would call on you to do that. The command is for all men everywhere to repent, turn from your sin, and believe now while you have the light, lest the darkness consumes you. The Lord Jesus has suffered greatly on the cross for sin. 
and has commanded all men now to repent, to believe in that, in that gospel and that work he has accomplished to escape the punishment for our sin and has risen again on the third day for our sanctification, for our justification so that we may have life in him. With that, let's let's turn to a word of prayer again for closing. Lord, you are full of mercy and grace. I want to thank you for that, and especially that you have extended that to us here. Um, I just want to thank you for the fact that you have preserved Dylan and that you have seen it fit that he may be rescued and restored to his family, God. I just can't imagine the the horror he might have gone through through the night and uh, the family too. The suffering uh, of just one night and it's just and I just think of your suffering that night in the in the garden, Lord, where you suffered tremendously in a different sense than this, but in that you understand our sufferings and you um, you sympathize with us, Lord. Thank you for that. And also for us here today, Lord, you delight in showing mercy. And But at the same time, you will pour out your wrath on those who refuse to bow the knee to you. You make that very clear in your word, Lord, and it is a sobering thing. So may those be reminded that this is the hour. Now is the time of salvation. I pray especially for anyone here today that have not yet received the forgiveness of sin through repenting of their sin and truly trusting in the finished work of, of you, Jesus, on the cross. Lord, may you shine a light in their hearts and reveal to them the truth that their sin and the eternal consequences of their sin, Lord, and the judgment. Lord, reveal to them now the truth about you, Jesus. Refresh in us also again the truth of the cross and the cost of your redemption. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. I apologize, it's a little bit shorter than I would have anticipated.